This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and you're listening to us at our new weekly premiere time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Thursdays. So welcome to all of our new listeners. I hope you'll make a note and join us every week at this time. And don't forget to follow us at our new Twitter handle, at SXM Business. For those of you who've been tuning in for years, you'll see that today's guest embodies everything we celebrate here on Women at Work. Pat Mitchell is a master of her craft who has fundamentally changed the media landscape and in doing so changed countless women's lives for the better. Pat's created a body of award-winning work in front of the cameras as a news reporter and anchor, national talk show host, and White House correspondent. She was equally groundbreaking behind the camera as a creator and producer of films and television programs that have both documented and created history and served as the first woman president of PBS and of CNN Productions. In her rewired alternative to retirement, which I hope we'll talk about today, Pat is the co-founder and editorial director of TED Women, chair of the Sundance Institute, and the Women's Media Center. She's also a trustee of the V-Day Movement and Acumen Fund. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the International Academy of Television and Sciences, and the International Women's Forum. She's also, as if she's not doing enough already, the author of an amazing new book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk to Change the World, that's a deeply candid memoir and an inspiring and instructional call to action, which I'm sure you can understand why, is I am honored to welcome Pat Mitchell to our program today. Pat, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. Good morning. And thank you for that very generous introduction. Oh, completely earned, Pat. I have so many questions for you, but the first one is, you've been telling other people's stories for your entire career. What made you to decide to tell your own story now? You have just presented the biggest barrier I had (laughs) to telling my story. Uh, Every time I sat down to do what many friends had recommended that I do, which is, you know, recall my life and career, I did think of it as instructions and inspiration, but I had a real barrier to telling my story because as I'm fundamentally a journalist and fundamentally a teacher. So until I could make the connections between what I had experienced and reported out with connections to and value for today's uh, generation of working women and women everywhere, um, it just didn't feel valuable use of my time. And the second barrier to that was that I'm so deeply engaged in living my life still that every time I had to sit down and write about the past or <laughs> what, what I had experienced, uh, that was an additional barrier. I find, by the way, and I'm sure you do in your conversations, that this is not unusual for women. <laughs> no. <laughs> for us to feel that, you know, our stories uh, don't have as much value as, as others or as other people actually value them. So um, that, that imposter syndrome, that uh, <laughs> uh, tendency to think that talking about ourselves is bragging, that was, a, that was another barrier. Uh, and can I, I'll share a funny story. One of my great women friends, um, in one of the times in which I stopped writing completely, put the book aside and, and just said, this is not for me. And I was explaining to Ruth Ann Harnish, a really dear friend, that I felt like every time I wrote something about myself, it was bragging. And Ruth Ann practically grabbed me by the shoulders put me up you know, almost against the wall. And she said, listen, it isn't bragging if you did it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and also, we really need to hear your story because you're such a role model for so many women, Pat. So it's a gift that you're giving to a lot of us. Well, thank you for that. I have heard from young women and, interestingly enough, uh, some young men, too, as I've gone through across the country doing book events and and speaking at all at 
ages of um, audiences, and I have heard that there is inspiration because there are still so many challenges and barriers, and many of the ones that my generation faced, and hopefully some of them we dismantled, uh, continue. And so if it if it helps anyone look at us and say, well, she survived, and maybe I can learn something from how, then, then clearly it would have been worth it. Absolutely. So, Pat, I want to back up to something that you were noting in talking about one of the first drivers here is about what's going on at this moment in time. And this book isn't just a memoir. It's about um, finding your internal power to go into the world as a dangerous woman. And so talk to me about what it is that's happening that you've been seeing in the world right now that's made you want to bring this message of being dangerous to us and the relationship between courage and being dangerous. The relationship between courage and dangerousness and fear and being more fearless were two... um, contrasting and deeply felt emotions that I really had to deal with uh, throughout my life. And I don't think that's unusual for women. But as but I have dealt with it, as, as we all do, sometimes simply because there was no option but to take a risk, and sometimes because I felt that I could take that leap of faith in myself. But as I look at what's happening today, and I saw the rollback, on the rights that my generation and others had fought so deeply to secure, reproductive rights, the health, uh, access to health care, and all and many others that, that we could name, I began to feel more and more that it was necessary to both remind us of where we had been and how quickly we were moving backward and how slowly we were moving forward. And really, I have to say that my work in the nonprofit sphere, my um, service on the boards, um, V-Day, for example, and knowing and witnessing and being a part of the work going on all over the world in violence and seeing that in spite of the efforts of V-Day and every other organization working in the world, violence against women is increasing, not going down, increasing. And then on the work of the Women's Media Center, seeing that while we have increased the numbers, the actual numbers of women who are in the media business and technology businesses, and how wonderful is that, we have not moved the needle at the top. There are still no women running major media and technology companies. There are few. There are some gratefully breaking that barrier. But we are still not in the rooms where the big decisions are being made about our lives and our bodies. And that, frankly, summoned up (laughs) all of my courage, got me past uh, any fears I might have had. I've never actually had a fear of speaking out. I have to say that that started early for me, encouraged early for me by uh, my grandmother and my eighth grade English teacher. (laughs) But, uh, but, but, But going beyond that, you know, to a place that I now describe as being willing to be as dangerous as necessary, meaning to be as fearless, as courageous, uh, to speak out against all injustices, to stand up in all rooms and say, okay, who's not here? Who's not in this room? Who needs to be? Because I never go into a room, or almost never, in which I don't note that there's some community not represented, a community of color, a mm-hmm. marginalized, vulnerable community, are, are the most experienced woman in the company. I mean, there are just uh, still those empty spaces where voices and points of view and experiences would add value to the room. So mm-hmm. becoming more and more determined and committed to doing that, even when it was uncomfortable and sometimes it is so um it's not it, it was not just some big leap you know from, no. from, from uh natural and normal fears to like okay now i'm going to say everything i think and feel <laughs> but, <laughs> but but it, it it's been a journey but i i do believe 
basically going back to your first point in the question, that we are living in very dangerous times. We are on the brink of uh, going backwards faster than we have ever moved forward, and not just for women, uh, but for all vulnerable communities and for all of us who live in free and open societies. With, um, so with, all of those worries and fears led me to to decide, okay, I I have to step it up. <laughs> <laughs> and we are to move to another level here. And we are grateful that you did. For those who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Pat Mitchell, editorial director of TED Women and the author of Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk, to change the world. We're talking about how we can connect women with opportunities to be brave, to confront their own fear, and take on these big challenges in the world. So, Pat, in the book, one of the things that you did that I found uh, really inspiring and also unusual is woven in your memoir are a series of short interviews that you've done with extraordinary women leaders um, who are themselves fearless, brave, really dangerous women. Why did you punctuate the memoir this way, and how did you choose them? Thank you for noticing that, Laura. For me, it was one of the it was one of the reasons I was able to finish the book, actually, <laughs> uh, because as you suggested earlier in in our conversation, I'm essentially a journalist, and I am much more comfortable telling other people's stories. So when I was in the midst of writing my own story, finding the connections to today, and and feeling that it would provide some sort of mentorship, I still felt there were there were voices I wanted to bring forward, women that I knew were way ahead of me on the danger curve. <laughs> they, had, uh, they were either living with constant and ever-present danger, which was the case of Zoya from Afghanistan and Christine uh, Schuler-Describer from the Congo, but there were also women across a wide spectrum from the president, a former president of Ireland, the first woman president, Mary Robinson, to Christiane Amanpour. Um, so I wanted to give the reader not only my path to dangerousness and why I felt it was necessary now, but to talk with these women about what their path to dangerous had been. And even though they're brief interviews, we focused on the three or four questions of why do you think now is the time that we have to step up to, at different levels of courage and fearlessness and risk-taking, and they all come at that from different perspectives. But as I began to have those interviews, I really did not only further commit myself to this path, but I saw a lot of different ranges of the way in which dangerous plays out in one's life and work. And I felt that was important, too, to hear from a Stacey Abrams who stepped up so bravely mm -hmm. to run. Sorry, I just dropped my earphones. Are you still hearing me? <laughs> uh, we can hear you. No worries, Pat. Okay, um, but, you know, to, to see that range from a, a woman of color bravely stepping up to be the first woman to run for governor of any state in this country um, to a, a young woman uh, healing her uh, country women in, in a war-torn country uh, to Abigail Disney, you know, uh, speaking out and saying, I don't care what anybody thinks about me anymore. Right. <laughs> I'm going to say what I think no matter what. So all of that added up for me to a kind of uh, bigger narrative about what danger and dangerousness means in our lives and work. Well, also, as the masterful storyteller that you are, um, it's woven through um, your memoir, which I have to tell you, I gobbled up. I was reading it while flying. I didn't even realize we had taken off or landed. It was that engaging. Oh, thank you. 
thank you. For uh, first time author, <laughs> that, that, such, that, that really uh, is very meaningful. And, and I'm telling you, and I, and even though I was pausing to stop my daughter from what she was doing, because there were big sections I wanted her to read. Um, one of the things that I found so amazing is when we know and we hear your bio that you've produced award-winning documentaries, captured history on a grand scale, but you began storytelling at a very young age, and it was actually the theater that got you on this path. And um, does any of it have anything to do with a Miss Shirley Roundtree? Can you tell us oh, who everything. she was? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Miss Shirley Roundtree walked into my eighth grade English class, and I, I just immediately said, okay, that's who I want to be. <laughs> even, before, <laughs> even before she, uh, we be, you know, became friends, uh, she was extraordinary, especially you have to remember, I'm in Swainsboro, Georgia. I'm in a town of 5,000 people where everybody knew everyone. And Mrs. Roundtree, or Miss Roundtree, who became Mrs. Reed while we were um, together, <laughs> she, she walked in with this absolutely coordinated outfit, head to toe, blazing red lipstick and, and nails, and was the smartest person I had ever heard open her mouth. Um, and and with such confidence. And that she was an entirely new kind of woman for me to see, to be with every day, and to start to model myself after. She was the first time I saw walking and in reality, the kind of woman I knew I had wanted to be and wanted to be. And she saw me for the first time. She was the first person I think who looked at me and saw who I could be and then started to advise and counsel me on how to get to where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to college. No one in my family had. And she knew I had to have a full scholarship. So to prepare me for that, she made sure, you know, I studied and made straight A's and that I had a special um, ability that would, would help me stand out for scholarships. And for her, that was the theater, which she loved. So we set up a theater company and she cast me in every play. <laughs> so really, before I knew it, I was winning Best Actress Award. <laughs> so this was really your first resume item in building a production company. You know, it really was because we were a little bit like those old movies where you hear people say, oh, let's put on a show. I mean, that's pretty much what we did. I mean, Swainsboro had no theater department, <laughs> but Mrs. Ms. Roundtree created one. And, uh, and she got this little group. There was just a few of us who really cared about this. Uh, you know, it was um, it was extraordinary. When I look back on it and I look back on the plays that we did, oh, my goodness. Talk about groundbreaking. I mean, she was the one who led me right into risk-taking because we took some very big risk. And uh, everything that she was in my life, um, it, it, it was a huge intersection of my dreams and ambitions and someone who I felt represented uh, that and who helped me find my path to it. Well, you've certainly honored her in everything you've done. And I love the way that you are reflecting on how important it is when somebody really sees us and also yeah. serves as a role model. And she wasn't just a mentor for you. It also sounds like she was a bit of a sponsor. She was. She definitely sponsored me. I wouldn't have gotten the scholarship, but she got. She put me in her car <clears throat> and drove me to Athens, Georgia, because since you've read the book, you know, my father refused um, for me to go. He wanted me to take my scholarship to a small girls' school somewhere. Um, but I, she knew they had the best drama department, and that would be best for me. And she was the one who kept me on that path, even when I decided drama wasn't my way forward. I really wasn't talented. <laughs> it was one thing to win Best Actress in Georgia, but it was another thing to compete somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah. well, we want to extend thanks to Ms. Shirley Roundtree, who later became Mrs. Reed, because she clearly put you on a path that we're all grateful for. It also sounds like this was the beginning, and also going into theater. Was this where you learned the art of storytelling? I, I think I continued to love... The storytelling, but actually, Lauren, it was my grandmother who started 
my storytelling. And, and I find now almost every woman I talk to is a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost become a cliche. Uh, and now that I am a grandmother, believe me, I take that very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you should carry that mantle with honor. <laughs> I certainly do. I, and I have the greatest relationship with my grandchildren. It's such a source of joy. But my grandmother, who was uneducated, sixth grade education, never been anywhere other than the tenant farms where she lived and worked. Uh, and eight children, all born at home, no electricity, no indoor toilets. I mean, the, you know, a life that would clearly not have fostered the storytelling skills that she had, nor even her support for me, which was from the very beginning so critical. But she would tell me stories every night as I would comb her long, dark hair. Um, I later found out that she had Native American roots, which is not that unusual in the South. But we didn't know it at the time. But she had this very exotic and beautiful look and long, dark hair. And she would tell me these stories of places I knew she'd never seen or knew anything about. But she just wove them into these beautiful tales. And she had a saying for everything, everything. So I think uh, you may remember mm -hmm. one of the ones that I followed all of my life is when I would fall, which I did frequently because <laughs> I was always running, uh, even as a child, and I still do, she would pick me up and she'd say, well, honey, at least falling on your face is a forward movement. <laughs> and that, and I, at the time, I would look at her and think, what is she talking about? But the fact is, as I went through life experiencing other kinds of falls mm -hmm. and failures and disappointments, I would think about that because it doesn't feel like that when you're on the ground. It doesn't feel like that when they've canceled your show or when the job you moved across the country to take disappears. It never feels like that's a forward movement. It feels like, okay, maybe the dreams are, are ended. But somewhere inside of me, from a very early age, believing that that person believed that, someone I loved and respected, um, would give me enough strength to, you know, okay, I'll just put one foot in front of the other. I'll go to another interview. I'll try another audition. I'll do, do whatever I have to do, but I'll just keep moving forward. And in every single case in my life, and I find this is true with so many others, out of failures or disappointments would come my biggest step forward. Isn't it ironic that that's always the case? And you mm -hmm. don't expect it. You don't. And yet we all go up hearing that, especially in business classes, right? You always hear, <laughs> you have to risk failure in order to succeed. I mean, how many times? Please celebrate the fail. It's almost yeah, a motto. It is almost a motto now. And yet, the, when I would hear it, I would go, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you've never been employed, unemployed. That's what I would think, you know, or you've never faced uh, uh, having to pay rent and having to borrow it from a friend. I mean, we always have these little excuses we give ourselves for, okay, well, maybe that worked for you. But knowing deep inside and believing, as I did, that my grandmother was right and that I, it was somehow going to move me forward got me through and probably helped me, as, as it does many who believe that. It helped me find the way forward. And throughout the book, um, you, give, you give examples of times that you had an opportunity in front of you, and it was either, you know, walk away from it or say yes and dive into the deep end. And the quote that I pulled out that's now written on a paper on our refrigerator is, be ready to learn quickly by doing. Oh. Did some of this have its roots in falling forward? Yes, um, it did. I, I used to get a lot of no's, as we all did, but especially growing up, as, as I did, it was a, uh, you know, the, I got a lot of no's about everything <laughs> I wanted to do. Um, and um, it, so I was always looking for the yes. And that, um, that yes doesn't automatically come if you are hesitant to do something because you haven't done it before. And as I moved into these opportunities that I didn't really know whether I knew how to do it, I just felt the best answer was, 
okay, I, I will say yes, and I will learn what I need to learn. Right, it, right there, Pat, that's so much courage that so many women struggle to have. How did you not doubt yourself in those moments? Oh, I did. I did. <laughs> uh, when I took that job in television, and, and quite literally, um, you know, the, the answer was, can, oh, not when I took the job, but when I did my first television story and you know mm-hmm. the guy says to me can you do this story for us I didn't know what do this story even meant but I just I said yes because I thought I will trust myself to figure this out or I'll find the right people to ask now men have known that for a long time Ron, because yes. I never ever in all my years as a media executive or a head of a production company I never had a man say to me, you know, I'm not sure I know how to do that job. Yeah, we don't know what that looks like coming out of a man's mouth. We don't hear it. Never heard it. Never never heard a man also say, I don't really tick all the boxes on those qualifications. I only like I've only done a couple of them. I mean, because they come in with a different cultural orientation toward their own confidence and believing, I think. Uh, that they can do it, and probably rightly so, because they've had a lot of support systems <laughs> that told them they could. We, on the other hand, have a lot of systems that tell us we can't, or we're not qualified, or we don't quite have the uh, the amount of education or the training or the experience. And since we come into so many things with less experience because the doors have been closed, and that was certainly the case for us in television, You just simply had to learn while you were doing. I want to connect the dots between that emotional experience and when you first met Ted Turner. Can you tell us what that dialogue was like and what it led to? (laughs) Uh, Memorable. (laughs) What it was like. Um, I, of course, at the time that, that I got the call to come and meet Ted Turner, I had had you know, quite an interesting career already. Um, I had worked for the networks and had my own production company twice, and I was in the middle of uh, trying to run a, a new independent production company. Uh, and here was this man who was upending the entire media landscape. He had launched the Superstation, the first one ever, and he had launched CNN, which by the time we met had already uh, – gone from being the chicken noodle network, which is what my network <laughs> friends called it, <laughs> believe it or not, to the, uh, you know, the first Iraqi war and, and changing everyone's uh, point of view about mm-hmm. news 24 hours. So I was interested clearly and intrigued by the opportunity to meet this um, media entrepreneur. But he was hardly uh, at the top of everyone's list of someone you'd want to work for (laughs) at the time uh, because he was, you know, always a sort of uh, loud talking, uh, bragging Southern good old boy and not exactly where I want. And I didn't want to come back to the South either. (laughs) Right. You've been happy up north. (laughs) I was very happy there and currently in California when uh, running this company, my own company. And I love that part, too. But I had an idea for this documentary series on the history of women because my documentary company with my partners was completely focused on telling women's stories. And we were having a hard time getting people interested in telling those stories. And every every media company had turned down this proposal. So I thought, well, if I go and interview for this job with Ted Turner, I'll at least have the opportunity to pitch him the idea. So here's another thing that we often don't do as women, but I found that men do often, is that they network so well, they think of each opportunity as a network. And I had begun to, uh, as as someone coming into the business with no connections, Mm -hmm. I, I really learned early the value of doing that, of nurturing connections and sustaining them when you could. Uh, and sometimes we think that sounds kind of manipulative. That isn't manipulative. That's smart. You know, just keeping connections alive. So I thought, well, if nothing else, I'll meet this man and I'll get some insight into, you know, what he's thinking about where media is going, et cetera. And I wanted to see CNN, all those motivations. But I literally went into a job interview not wanting that job. I just wanted to get him to do to produce and fund 
the series. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so the, the first meeting was a little complicated by that <laughs> because I, I was on one track and he was on another. So you're going into this meeting with this swaggering icon. Um, <laughs> and to your credit, it sounds like you're going in with the perspective of um, if, if nothing else, you're going to learn something and you're going to yes. build a connection. Yeah, exactly. Those are the two things. And the third but most important one for me was, and maybe he'll like this idea. And please fund Uh, a project. Yeah, at least fund the project that we had spent two years trying to find somebody to fund this 10-hour series on the history of women. And you may remember, because you read the account Mm -hmm. of the first uh, interview, that when he asked me how much money I needed, I actually didn't know if he was asking me how much money I would want to run his documentary unit, which was the job I was interviewing for, or whether he was asking me how much money I needed to produce the series, which I'd already told him about. (laughs) And in that split second, I'm thinking, if I give the wrong answer here, (laughs) (laughs) this is probably the end of the meeting. So I just took the shot that, he was asking about the documentary series because that seemed to be the thing that was on his mind at the moment. And and so I, I, I gave him the figure, which would have been outlandish if it had been my salary. Right, because it was about, what, $2 million? $2 million, right. Uh, gratefully, he, he thought it was the right answer. And, <laughs> and, he, and he agreed to fund the series and, and also, as he put it, um, you can do the series, but you'll have to do it as... Um, running my documentary unit. <laughs> so the fact is Ted won and I won. That was that was a really good example of a win-win. Indeed. And I learned a lot <laughs> about win-wins and win-loses uh, working for Turner Broadcasting. It was a very alpha male-driven organization. It was somewhat dysfunctional. Um, Ted had a leadership style that um, was lead follow or get out of my way. So you, I, I had to talk about learning while doing. Mm-hmm. I had to learn. I had to relearn in this case, Laura, almost everything that I had that had driven my career up to that point. Because I had to learn how to convince and influence things getting done and. A completely different environment, an almost all-male environment at the executive level, where I had come from running two production companies that were all women. That you had oh. been able to build as all-women enterprises. Yes, yes and, and, and loved it, loved every minute of it. So I, re- for me, the biggest risk in going to work for Ted was that one. And I didn't stop and calculate it because had I done that, I probably would have said no, (laughs) Um, you know, because I was personally very satisfied with the work environment that we had created. And I loved our work. I mean, everything about it was good, except we weren't making a living. (laughs) Small detail, right. A small detail. And well, we were making a living, but we clearly were barely. But secondly, I, I again went for the my passion which fortunately my partner shared, which was the passion to get that story told. So if that's the way we got it told, is my taking this job and getting Ted Turner to fund the project, then we did. And I didn't think way beyond that, and I never have. Um, I That's a, another characteristic, I think, of being a risk taker. You just can't think too far out uh, into the future. So I wasn't sure after that series, you know, would this be the right thing for the next four or five years or two years or 18 months? It turned out to be the next thing for eight years. One of the things that um, was so remarkable in reading the story of what the next eight years included and also um, with what Ted brought to the table was this vision, this big, big ambition about using media to make a difference. And Mm -hmm. it seems like if I understood what I was reading, this was also a catalyst for you to engage even more deeply in wrestling with history and how stories are told. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the big, big projects that you did with him and how you started to wrap your head around the importance of them. I would 
I appreciate that opportunity, Laura. Do you mind if I say where the seeds for that were? Oh, please because go ahead. I'm sorry. The, no, I, I, I very much welcome this opportunity because it is truly a driving passion in my life. But it came to me as a realization in my first five years of working as a reporter and anchor in television in Boston, one of the biggest, most influential markets, certainly at that time. When I realized the power of media and the difference we could make with it, I started early on in the mid-70s to lobby and advocate, and it, it, it did take both, um, getting more and more women's stories on the air. I mean, there was nothing on television for women at that time except soap operas and game shows right. in daytime. And then Phil Donahue gratefully came along. But there were, and so I really pushed, and with my colleagues who we finally came together and supported each other, which was not encouraged, we actually did some groundbreaking things in Boston in the mid-70s, including a 24-hour program produced entirely by women and hosted entirely by women. Uh, even the New York Times called it groundbreaking. But then, and that was 1975, and yet I found every job I had following I was still sort of always feel like a breaking new ground to use the power of media to change, not to, well, yes, to shift directions, to shape opinions, to give information that was missing, mm -hmm. and to talk about the lives that were undocumented and uncelebrated on television. So that became a driving passion. And when I went to work for TED, it was that passion to tell the story of women in America and our history and our accomplishments that got me into that office the for and, and got me into Ted's um, into the world there. Because but you're how, in... Go ahead. I was just, just going to say, how lucky was I that I had, well, not completely, it wasn't luck, because I, I, you... knew, Ted, I knew Ted's inclinations and passions for history and for making a difference in the world with media. He called the documentary unit... The Better World Society. I mean, he really believed media could create a better world. That was the whole purpose of CNN and the whole purpose of the documentary unit that I got to lead. So from the beginning, he would say to me, if you bring me a story that has not been told or not been told well, and a story that will make a difference in, the, in creating a more just and sustainable world, we will do it. And that was it. I only had to convince him of that one thing. And so to be in a alliance with someone who had that vision for media was just such a huge privilege. And with him, I got to do the longest documentary series ever done for television, The Cold War, to document 40 years of history, global history, from a global perspective to spend four years working with crews on six continents, to interview 600 world leaders, to create what is still now the most comprehensive story of 40 years of global history that exists anywhere. It, uh, what a privilege. It, and extraordinary. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is the legendary media maker, Pat Mitchell. She's here to talk about her new book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk to Change the World. And we've been talking about the stories that she's helped to tell as she's telling us her own, for which we're enormously grateful. So, Pat, one of the things that you talked about in the book that you did in these, you started it with Woman to Woman. Um, you certainly did it in the work with the Sundance Institute and getting Native American stories to be told, was focusing on the importance of getting the people who don't normally tell us the stories of history to tell their own stories. And in that process, you were also personally affected at various times. Can you talk a little bit about, I want to jump back to what you did at Women to Women and the power of those personal stories even over your own life? Yes. One of the biggest um, and ultimately uh, difficult decisions in writing about my own life was um, whether or not I wanted to, what, what parts of my life story would I tell and what parts would I leave out? Or you can't tell everything in the 76 <laughs> years of life. 
but I knew this one would be difficult, and it was the story of my um, childhood abuse and uh, a secret that I not only had kept from the world, but I had even buried so deeply inside that I myself had not really ever come to terms with it. It was the way that a lot of survivors of sexual violence deal with um, such things is, is it goes deep into our memory so that we can function and, and um, go forward. So I hadn't really dealt with it, and I was hosting um, my own program called Woman to Woman, which every day featured conversations with 13 of or so um, women who would tell their own personal stories, and then we'd have conversations. And um, and that particular day, the, the subject was incest. And um, in the middle of it, I, I began to have what my therapist later described to me was a memory recall as um, the story triggered for me memories, and those memories led me to... Um, to come to terms over the next year or so with my own childhood and and how much of it, you know, even though not conscious memory, had uh, affected the way I lived. I clearly looked at my life at that time and saw nothing but success. I was hosting my own national program. I'd won an Emmy. I had my own company. I probably was at what many people would think the most successful moment, and it felt that way. And yet there was this deeply buried um, shame that comes with uh, incest as well as um, blame, clearly. So it was other women's stories that triggered for me a period of recovery. And gratefully, uh, I did recover yes. the memory, recover from the, the, the impact of such things at an early age. And, um, and I now decided that I would share that so that I could encourage other survivors to come forward as well. Pat, I, it is, think, it's a testimony to your courage and your bravery that you've done that. So on behalf of everyone who's struggling out there, thank you. Well, it's not it's not easy, but it is, as I said about one of the aspects of becoming more dangerous <laughs> is being willing to break silences. And had my generation broken the silence about sexual harassment and being paid less than our male colleagues, mm-hmm. both of which were realities for all of us, if we had broken the silences about that, we may be a lot further along on equal pay for equal work. And we'd certainly, I believe, be further along on the exposure of the power abuse of sexual harassment, something that I believe most of us experience. Certainly. And that's another place where I saw enormous um, courage on your part in the book. As you share these these personal details and the emotional journey that you went on, it was one of the first times that I heard a woman who had experienced tremendous success and clearly um, been through the ringer with, you know, the pernicious kind of persistent harassment that's in the workplace to say, I have a regret. When you think about that time and you think about where women still have a hard time coming forward, um, what do you wish you understood? What might have helped you um, not keep quiet then? What did you need to be less afraid? I needed to own my power because I had it. We all had it. If you were in a job that brought value to the company you worked for and all of us who were there in television stations and in wherever we were in the in the work environment, we had a position of power. It may have been limited, but we had it. And mm-hmm. in our case in, in television, uh, we had the power of, of our popularity, of our value. Now, that didn't mean that we couldn't be replaced, and that was the intimidation of, you know, what what was that great line that guy said to me, you know, about hamburger meat, the price goes up and down. He was literally comparing talent reporters to hamburger meat. Um, so we had the intimidations, as women still today had. 
But had we tapped in to that personal power that we have, we could have stepped forward and made a bigger difference. It might have meant, as it always does, um, the consequences of perhaps losing that job, which for me would have been disastrous. Mm -hmm. I was so supportive my son. And I certainly see now that the women who need us to do that the most are the ones who really can't speak out. But some of us could have. And I, I just wish that those of us who had that influence, who had that value in the marketplace where we were, who, who had, you know, the foundation that probably would have protected us, mm-hmm. especially, Laura, if we had come together. That's if we key. had trusted each other enough to confess and say, look, I'm experiencing this. Are you? And look, here's what I make. What do you make? But we never did that. We were encouraged to compete, to compare, to criticize, to stay in our silos. And doing that kept us from coming together and saying, okay, I'm not making the same thing as my co-anchor. Are you? And by the way, I got sexually harassed by my boss when I asked him for a raise. Did you? And if we had had that collective knowledge and had collectively come forward, I believe we could have we could have made a difference in what has happened to women since. And so we, yes, I regret that. And I and that's part of why I make it such a big message in the book that that that's the that's what the power we're leaving on the table is the power of coming together and showing up and supporting one another. So speaking of coming together and supporting one another, um, talk to me about Ted Woman. It sounds like its seeds were planted all the way back with Miss Shirley Roundtree and then with Woman to Woman. But now you're doing this on the TED stage. How did it happen and what are your ambitions for it? It happened because as someone who went to TED conferences, I was speaking up about the lack of women on the TED stage. And this was in 2010, and Chris Anderson, who took Ted into the uh, stratosphere (laughs) of impact and support, uh, listened to me. But he said two things that you hear all the time. I couldn't find enough qualified women. And sometimes when we invite women, they say no. And by the way, both things were true. But I said, let us make a special effort. Are you looking for women rocket scientists? What women? And we began to support and suggest uh, other women for the TED stage. And of course, once given that opportunity, they were spectacular. And now the TED conference is more than 40% women speakers. But I still felt that the narrative I was seeing around the world of women and girls stepping into a different level of power, coming forward with you know, innovations and ideas that were still not being uh, as fairly represented as they should be, that we needed our own conference just Mm -hmm. to add to the numbers and nothing else. Uh, And to take that platform that was out there of great reach and, and impact, why not take that and create it as a special opportunity for even more women? So I had two goals in mind, and so did Chris, and that was to increase the number of women who were at all TED conferences, and then to create a special place where women could come together. Some men come as well. Some men speak as well, but focused on the ideas and innovations of women. That was 2010. We are now going into the ninth one, and there are you know nearly 500 TED Talks on TED.com and other places online that exist because there is a TED Women. So So I'm very proud of that. You should be very proud of it. And when I looked online to see the variety of um, the people who have spoken, the content that's there, it really covers such a almost the whole scope of issues that are facing women, including the inspiration that can come from women to teach other women to find their courage, to be brave and to be dangerous. Um, Well, that's going to be my TED Talk this year. Good. (laughs) You know, it is funny. Um, My favorite thing in the world is finding those women. Um, And and this year, as as it has been every year, the speakers are from dozens of other places and countries. I mean, it's a very global experience. So you do get to hear from women that we are just, you know, not going to know about 
and, and such fabulous uh, ideas that coming coming to the stage. But nonetheless, after curating, which is my favorite part, coaching other speakers, which I also love, those TED Talks take a lot of preparation. But this year, Chris said to me, well, you know, you've got to give your own TED Talk. So I am now... <laughs> I am now experiencing the same sort of anxiety, I think, that everyone comes into that uh, experience with. But I I do love that the commitment to making it as inclusive, as diverse, as fully experiential as as women's lives are everywhere. Uh, That was the goal. And and I, I do feel like we're we come close to accomplishing that. We can always get better, um, but I am uh, I think together with Ted, it the conference has had um, had reach and impact. Oh, it has a profound impact because anybody who's listening now can just go online and check it out and know that there's now this amazing stream of content that's coming our way. Pat, you're involved in so many things. With just the the minute that we have left, where can people find out um, about the book, about TED Women, and about the other things that you're doing where they can bring storytelling to bear on the things they want to make a change in in the world? One minute to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, just point us to the URL. Laura, Laura, I've been there. But I, I understand that. That's what I say to TED Talks. You know, okay, you've got 12 minutes. Tell us everything you know. Right. Uh, no. Um, well, there is a website, uh, patmitchellmedia.com, and I try and keep it updated with the activities that I'm involved in with a lot of information about the nonprofits because I believe that where I have chosen to – spend my time and to serve um, with time and any other kind of resource uh, are making a difference in the world. So I love being able to celebrate that. I write blog posts frequently, having just done one from Melinda Gates on the value of women coming together. Apropos our TED Women conversation. Yes. I totally believe in the value of that. I believe that's how we're going to um, make the greatest difference in the world is showing up in those rooms, coming together, sharing our learning and experiences, and drafting up and doing some problem solving. Doing <laughs> with problem that, solving together. Without so, a um, doubt. What I'm doing is all on patmitchellmedia.com. Fantastic. Pat, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you everyone for listening. This is Laura Arrow on Women at Work here on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.